Well, good evening and a really very warm welcome to each and every one of you to St. Paul's tonight. My name is Mark Oakley and I'm the Chancellor here and it's a really uh, good thing to see so many of you here this evening. A very, very warm welcome. I'll introduce our speaker to you in a moment, but for those of you who haven't been to one of our events before, let me just quickly explain how it works. In a moment, uh, Bishop Catherine will speak about how we can, as people of faith in the 21st century, read the creation accounts in Genesis in the light of contemporary science. And she will speak for about 35 minutes or so, and then we will have time for you to ask your questions. Now, if you have a question, please write it on the back of your program and then hold it up to be collected at any point throughout the evening. We won't think you're asking to be excused. Don't worry, just be bold, raise up the paper, and it will be collected, and we'll collect them up until about 7.40. Please try and keep those questions brief and legible. And then by sizzling hot Church of England technology, they will be fed up here to me uh, on the laptop and I will ask as many of those questions as I can. We're also taking questions via Twitter using the hashtag ScienceFaith. And if you'd like to send your question through a phone or device, just type in your question and include hashtag ScienceFaith and we'll find it. We will end at 8, and there's a bookstall here where you can find some of Bishop Catherine's books, and she's kindly said that she will sign copies afterwards for you over there at that table. And now it gives me real pleasure to introduce our speaker. She was the most reverend Dr. Catherine Jeffords Shorey. And that is because until last year she was the presiding bishop of the Episcopal Church in the United States of America. Translated into local dialect, that means archbishop. Before being ordained, she had a very successful career as a professional scientist, having earned a doctorate in oceanography, specialising, I believe, in squid and the octopus. She's been a university lecturer, a hospice chaplain, has served in parish ministry in Oregon, and before being elected presiding bishop, they do things differently in America, she was for five years the Bishop of Nevada, where she put to good use her pilot's license, flying herself to visit the more remote parts of her diocese. And I have to admit that this boring canon of St. Paul's finds that unbelievably glamorous. <laughs> Rather Bond-like, actually. <laughs> During her presidency, Dr. Jeffrey Shorey was a vocal, sometimes controversial advocate for the poor and marginalised, as well as for action on climate change and care for the earth. She remains passionate both about science and theology, and in particular about the fruitful communion between them. And throughout her extraordinarily varied life, from the lab 
to the slums of Nairobi, to the pulpit and the mixed blessings of the high profile that being the Anglican Communion's first woman primate has given her, I believe she's modelled a Christian discipleship that is unafraid to reason and unashamed to adore. A discipleship keen to deepen the mystery of God rather than simply resolve it. And she has worked hard to model for us a Christian spiritual life that speaks up for others. So if we're asking tonight how we can both think critically and try to live faithfully, then I think we're in the right company. And I really am delighted she has travelled especially from the States to be here with us all tonight. So please, would you join me in welcoming Bishop Catherine Jeffert Shorey. Thank you very much. It is a real privilege to be here again, and I am immensely grateful for your invitation. I need to tell you that the Episcopal Church is not just the United States of America, but we're in 16 other countries as well, uh, most of them in Latin America, but also Taiwan and six countries in Europe. They're all Episcopalians. They speak many different languages. In the beginning, what is that story on page one really all about? The origins of what we see and know around us? Who did it? Why? Where and for whom? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth reminds us that God is and was before the beginning. That opening is reflected in the pervasive human narratives that start a long time ago and far, far away, or once upon a time. Like nearly every human attempt to explain or locate us, It begins to tell where we came from, why we're here, and where we're bound. It's a search for connection and meaning in the vastness of time and space. The first creation story in Genesis says quite a lot about how God created. By speaking, let there be light, by distinguishing one element from another, God separated the light from the darkness, by naming day, night, sky, by designating frameworks of time and space, day one, day two, and perhaps most importantly, by perceiving goodness and pronouncing blessing, particularly on the human creatures 
and the Sabbath day of rest. But in no stretch of the imagination is it a mechanistic recipe or what today we'd call a scientific one. Creation begins with the wind-breath spirit of God moving over a dark and formless void. And out of that watery chaos, surprising things emerge, including human creatures who reflect God's creativity in part by their ability to imagine and dream and discover how things work. That first creation story in Genesis is not a scientific explanation or a theory. It's inherently, it's not inherently testable in a scientific sense, nor is it a repeatable experiment, at least for the human beings on this planet. The next creation story about Adam and Eve in the garden and what goes wrong is even less like a scientific theory. Both of these Genesis creation stories are about meaning rather than method or mechanism. Stories like these that tell about divine action and human origins are technically called myths we understand them as profoundly true in spite of the post-enlightenment conceit that began to use myth to mean something that isn't true. These stories of creation are part of the foundation of Judaism and Christianity. Like scientific theories, which are the community's best explanation for how things work, the truest stories we know about how things work. Myths are the truest stories that people tell about why things are as they are. There are several other accounts of creation in the Bible, even if we might not have always recognized them. The story of the Incarnation is about a new creation. God's emergence among us in human form as Jesus of Nazareth, as a new Adam, a new earthling who lives in this planetary garden in ways our forebears never did. The story of his baptism is another one. He hears that divine blessing, you are my beloved, in whom I am well pleased. It repeats and reinforces the Genesis blessing at a deeper level of clarification about the relationship between God and Adam. The story of the transfiguration is yet another creative affirmation. And the story that comes at the end of the Bible, in the final chapters of Revelation, 
proclaims the creation of a new heaven and a new earth in righted relationships of peace, wholeness, perfection, and blessing. That late chapter tells about the dross of the earth being consumed in a lake of fire, and a renewed creative order revealed in a beautiful and beloved city that's open to all, lighting the way and enlightening the whole of creation. In that account, the chaotic ocean of Genesis has given way to a life-giving river that nourishes and sustains the tree of life for all creation. And God declares once again that the divine home is with human beings. Scientists have been telling another creation story at least since our stargazing ancestors began to work out the predictable patterns the celestial bodies draw across the sky. Mayan and Aztec calendar makers, Neolithic henge builders, and Polynesian navigators may not have known the mechanisms behind solstices, eclipses, and the reliability of the North Star, but they learned to predict those cycles. Reliability and predictability have something to do with both faith and science. Both of those depend on trust that the universe is at least to some degree understandable. The kind of trust that religion calls faith. Many people assume that science and religion can't or shouldn't talk to each other. And they include both religious and scientific practitioners. Particularly in my context, evolution is often the biggest stumbling block. But for some, the no-go topics of conversation include cosmology, climate change, human reproductive biology, genetic manipulation. Some 20 years ago, a well-known evolutionary biologist insisted that religion and science are non-overlapping magisteria, N-O-M-A, NOMA, that simply must stay out of each other's realms of investigation. Yes, maybe they can chat over the back fence, if you will, but conclusions in one domain are incapable of affecting what's discovered or imagined or theorized in the other. Yet if we look at the history of science and theology and their respective methods, we might discover that that there's been a great deal of interplay over the centuries and increasingly so in many circles today. And many would argue that such conversation brings the possibility of mutually enlightening 
and even synergistic outcomes. We can look at at least four ways in which science and religion relate to one another. Frank conflict, the noma, the non-overlapping magisteria of separate realms, a dialogic model, and a fourth that's willing to use both the religious and the scientific lens to find a deeper and fuller view of the universe. The frank and open conflict stance is perhaps exemplified by fundamentalist Christians who insist that the world was created in six 24-hour days. Noma simply says the two fields ask different questions, that one tells us how the heavens go and the other tells us how to go to heaven, and never the twain shall meet. The dialogic model acknowledges the metaphorical and symbolic aspects of both and notes that some questions can only be answered in one of the two fields, but it encourages conversation and learning at the edges or the boundaries between them. The fourth sort of interaction seeks some level of integration within a larger framework than either, acknowledging that, like Gödel's theorem, there are intrinsic limits to what can be known or proven within one system. There is plenty of precedent for the, excuse me, the integrative approach. When Aristotle's works began to reemerge in the mid-12th century, thanks to their preservation by the Islamic world. Scholastic work often focused around how to reconcile theology with other fields of learning, especially natural science. And by the high Middle Ages, theology was deemed the queen of the sciences. People understood that science meant a field of study with its own particular methods of investigation. And today the integrative approach seeks a little more humility about the fullness of any kind of knowing. Religion and science share a number of parallel attitudes and practices, and it might be helpful to look carefully at those habits and disciplines. Scientists are often driven by wonder, awe, curiosity. Theologians, by a similar search for deeper understanding of eternal realities. Each discipline works with current theories about the best way to understand the nature of the world or God's creation. Knowledge advances in each field through questioning and testing theses for coherence or congruence. Occasionally, a radically new paradigm or way of assembling the evidence evokes a new chapter in in the larger story, a scientific revolution, 
or a new revelation in religious terms. Think about Darwin's work in natural history and Mendel's in genetics or the emergence of monotheism or the incarnation, both historically and doctrinally. The adoption of a theory in science requires testing and affirmation by a community. So does the acceptance or reception of doctrine or ethical practice in Christianity. And the Anglican Communion is living through a period like that right now. Not just about human sexuality or gender roles, but about the variety of ways in which we read the Bible. Each area of study is fundamentally a communal activity. While individuals may first give voice to novel ideas, the community's reflection and discernment is essential to both the growth and the ratification of knowledge. Knowledge that's always limited by human finitude. If each of those communities has some awareness of its own limits and some ability to exercise humility about those limits, the possibilities for mutual conversation can be synergistic. We might note the parallel of repentance and amendment of life as a spiritual discipline and the scientific community's practice of theoretical renunciation, amendment, or expansion that's involved in adopting a new scientific paradigm. Thomas Kuhn famously calls those episodes scientific revolutions, turning in a new direction. And the human upset that's manifested in both religious and scientific communities in the midst of paradigm shifts is identical. Today's global realities and challenges, I believe, require the application of both the best of scientific awareness and the best of our religious or moral reasoning. The cumulative effects of human activity over the last couple of centuries today threaten the very future of life on this planet. Any life-giving solution will demand scientifically and morally appropriate responses. The current Zika virus pandemic and its apparent teratogenic effects is evoking a similar kind of partnership. The particular challenge of a mutually enlightening conversation between religion and science has to do with the willingness of practitioners to acknowledge and affirm the continually changing reality of both disciplines. Neither science nor Christian belief is or can be utterly fixed and remain healthy and life-giving.
Some people will undoubtedly cry heresy or point us to the faith once delivered to the saints. But we need only remember that Christianity has its roots in Judaism, which has older roots in somewhat different traditions. And that while faith in Jesus as the Christ is meant to be firm and eternal, our capacity to hold that faith both grows and wavers, if we're honest. We pray that no one in this room has precisely the same understanding of relationship with Jesus, God, or Holy Spirit today as she or he did as a child. Though the central truth of God's loving, empowering, life-giving, and healing reality does not change. Our faith has continuity with what has come before, and it has changed. We live in hope that it continues to deepen and become ever more grounded and more broadly engaged. There's an ancient strand of theologizing that affirms that faithful human beings abide in God. That's what Augustine was saying when he put it like this. O God, you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. Several recent theologians have encouraged us to expand this metaphor or more deeply emphasize the image of the universe as in some sense God's body. It's not meant to say that the universe we know is all there is, but that it is a sacramental expression of God's inward reality. The image implies that all creation reflects the divine, not just human beings. And it expands and emphasizes human responsibility for creation. Like all such shifts in understanding, it takes a while for our eyes to focus on it, especially older eyes, so that they might begin to discern new and unforeseen implications. That first creation story in Genesis includes a divine direction to human beings to have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves upon the earth. And I learned today that these three domes here show you examples. And Mark can tell you where to find the Google pictures of them. As Lynn White pointedly noted half a century ago, this charge to exercise dominion has often been interpreted to mean that at least some human beings have the right 
and perhaps even the responsibility to use or exploit every non-human creature and probably large numbers of human creatures as well. Yet the root meaning of dominion comes from domus, that means house. Human beings are thus more appropriately understood as householders on this planet, who have responsibilities for housekeeping and husbanding the whole of the planetary home. The Greek word for that home is oikos, and it means the kind of domestic work we describe as economic and ecological. The biblical tradition, particularly the prophetic part of it, insists that the whole at the very least means all human inhabitants of this island home. Science has been teaching us for at least a couple of centuries that all of creation is deeply interconnected and that no one part of it can say, I have no need of this kind over here or this part over there. When human beings began to lay waste to tropical forests or the temperate forests that used to cover these islands or much of North America, when we foul our common airshed and poison our watersheds, the ability of human beings and other species to live or thrive is threatened. Jesus said his mission was abundant life, flourishing, the peace that comes of justice and equitable access to the basic resources of life. Theologians invite us to understand the life and existence of all of the natural world within God. And that everything it is, everything that is, in some way, reflects its source. The interconnectedness and interdependence of this planetary system is not a subject for doubt by today's scientific community. And there's increasing need for religious communities to claim our own theological understanding of interconnectedness and interdependence and to enter into a mutually constructive dialogue with science. The flourishing of creation, the abundant life Jesus insisted was his mission and goal and therefore the mission and goal of Christians is also, I believe, the duty of all faithful people. And it depends on our willingness to give evidence of the hope that is within us. Do we affirm the ultimately hopeful nature of life? Or are we resigned to being pawns 
of something beyond our awareness, our understanding, or loving relationship. I don't know that there are many in this context here, but in the United States, we still live with people who insist that climate change is a is being perpetrated. Um, it's a falsi- falsity. It's a lie being perpetrated by some people who want to control others. The current scientific cosmological story begins with the flaring forth of the Big Bang. And it unfolds over nearly 14 billion years into increasing complexity, interdependence. Increasing complexity and interdependence of the building blocks of matter, from particles to elements to stars and planets. And at some point, the emergence of life in molecules that reproduce themselves, learn, and change. Those living things also increase in variety and complexity. And they undergo several prunings or mass extinction events as the result of chemical, geological, and cosmological events and processes. Today, this planet faces another pruning as the result of human action, a current reality that's being called the Anthropocene Age, where human influences operate at geologic scale. The chemical, geological, and biological changes eventuating from atmospheric and oceanic pollution are extinguishing life forms at rates that are characteristic of those five earlier massive extinction events in the fossil record. We are quite literally remaking or unmaking the course of life on this planet. That unmaking cannot be said to reflect the image of God. It's a reflection of our collective turning away from God, of denying that all life has a common source and ultimately a common home. Scientists can describe what's happening with a growing confidence about the process of unmaking life's diversity here and its threat to human flourishing. But scientists cannot alone mobilize the energy that's necessary to shift our destructive behavior. I put it to you that the necessary shift can only come of changed human hearts and the passion of prophetic voices with all the soul force we can muster. The energy required is a sacramental expression of the reality within which we live and move and have our being. The one in whom 
we find the capacity for the work of transformation. It comes from knowing our connection to to eternal realities. It comes of internalizing the sacred knowing of shared narratives, divine values, and the reverence we call worship. It requires what the science of theology points toward. Jesus speaks of this transformative possibility. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Come, follow me. And his life, ministry, passion, and resurrection open recreative possibility for us and for all creation. That transformative road asks our whole being, loving God and neighbor with all our heart and mind and soul and strength, not all our hearts and minds and souls and strengths, but the work of a united body. It demands the full effort of the whole body, never just one part of creation, but the whole body bound together in love for each part, self, other, and the whole of God's creation, contained within the loving creator of all, like the chicks under the wings of a mother hen, O Jerusalem. Our part is to enlist the psalmist's lament over the wonder of creation, the prophetic critique of profoundly sinful behaviors that we mindlessly continue, and the prophetic hope and action toward the possibility of a renewed heaven here on this earth. There is more, much more, to be revealed in our ancient sources. Certainly beginning with our awareness of the covenant that God makes with all creation. Hosea, the prophet Hosea, speaks of a covenant with all the creatures of the earth that brings peace to the land, a land where all may lie down in safety. He uses the image of wooing and covenantal marriage with the land, whose children will be called God's people. That's another story of new creation, and a vision of restoration for all creation. Jesus' cousin, John, recalls that image for his own followers when he calls Jesus the bridegroom. Do we take that incarnation seriously enough to understand that the fruit of this holy marriage between Christ and church will be renewed creation? A creation that fulfills the Genesis charge to be fruitful and multiply and have the keeping of this whole earth? Are we able to hear that phrase, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it through the lens of 
First Peter, who charges his hearers not to lord it over those entrusted to their care? Might we remember the image of the risen one meeting Mary Magdalene outside his tomb? She takes him for the gardener, and he is the cosmic incarnate gardener with whom we are meant to share in caring for this garden, this garden walled in by space and time. There is no place for us other than divine memory if life cannot be sustained here. The diversity of life that undergirds creation here is shrinking fast. A million species may be gone by 2050 if we fail to garden and govern ourselves more lovingly and creatively. Exile would be preferable to the storms and floods, the hunger and pandemics that are coming. Yet there is no place of exile open to us. Or once we begin to imagine and experience creation as the body of God, might we share scientists' understanding of ocean as the amniotic fluid of life and our baptismal waters as a ritual remembering of our origin in the body of God? That ocean is warming and acidifying even faster than the atmosphere. And it will have far more dire effects for the billions of creatures who depend on its life-giving creativity. What will it take before we begin to see and know that it is in God that we live and move and have our being? The psalmist knew it millennia ago. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures throughout all generations. The eyes of all look to you and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand, satisfying the desire of every living thing. Today, that reality depends on us and the love we share for this walled garden. The prophet Jeremiah saw a vision of a boiling pot spewing forth disaster from the north. And he spoke God's judgment on those people, for they have made offerings to other gods and worshiped the works of their own hands. We have met that enemy, and it is us. Pray that the pollution pouring from that northern pot may yet be stayed or swayed toward life-giving possibility. This body of God's creation is a gift of love, for love, 
Yet we are crucifying the incarnate Lord once again. This body nourishes us with the bread of life and water of life from God's own self. Life on this watery planet is the result of love flaring forth nearly 14 billion years ago. We believe that love never ends. Yet the lively hope that flowed from that beginning, renewed in incarnation and shared with human housekeepers, is facing a monstrous test. Can we love our neighbors with a passion like what we know in the incarnate one? Are we ready to offer our lives and lay them down in the way of transformation that all might have more abundant life? Science has limbed the direction of our future. Do we have faith enough to stir human souls in response? May love flare forth in abundant and sustainable ways for all the parts of the body of God. May love flare forth in each one of us and spread at the speed of divine light to fill the heart of this body with passion for transformation. We live in hope that God continues to create within, through, and beyond what we know of this mortal body. So get up and go. Follow the gardener, risen from the tomb. Flare forth, people of God. And with God's help, this body of creation too will rise from its tomb. Thank you, Bishop Catherine, very much indeed. And now it is over to you. If you would like to ask a question, please do write it down, hold it up, make sure uh, that uh, our assistants around will be able to see it. They'll collect them and the questions will uh, come forth up to me here and I'll, as I say, get through as many as I can. Some have come through already. Thank you very much indeed. Some have come through on Twitter. Can I, can I just begin by asking whether, in talking of creation, sometimes we can sound romantic. Some people might say that people of faith um, can hear music when others only hear noise, mm-hmm. um, can see patterns when others only see chaos. Mm-hmm. What about that brutishness, that, that fight for control and dominance that is within the natural world. Is that being avoided in this sort of talk? I don't, I don't believe so. Uh, the uncertainty that's part of natural processes, I believe, is God's gift of free will. 
um, God's refusal to um, pull strings, um, the affirmation and encouragement of the goodness in each part of creation, that it will give glory to God in its own particular way, and that it is as free to do that as possible. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, thank you. Some questions are coming in. Please keep them going. Um, somebody's asked, can theology re-envision a form of housekeeping term that mm-hmm. you used, which recognizes that we cannot manage or control ecosystems? Could we begin to see ourselves as simply one species amongst many, mm-hmm. theologically? I think that's essential. And I think part of what we're, we've learned from careful examination of other species is the degree of intelligence and empathy that's present in a surprising number of non-human creatures. Uh, one, one of the big questions in evolutionary theory was about the role of altruistic behavior. Um, behavior in birds or other creatures that supports the survival of offspring that are not directly those of a particular animal. Uh, It goes on in all sorts of species. Uh, Cooperation is more likely to lead to the success of a a species. Uh, Human beings occasionally realize that. Uh, but theolo- theology has been very anthropocentric. Mm-hmm. I mean, I stand mm-hmm. round the corner quite often at the altar and I'm handed a Eucharistic prayer that I pray and talk about uh, God creating human beings, the crown of all creation, mm. I say. Is that true? Well, human beings invented war. <laughs> um, we're capable, perhaps, of both more gloriously holy behavior and more gloriously evil behavior than other creatures. Um, Would that we held that position with a little more humility. They're coming in uh, quick and fast here. If all creation is interdependent, should we resist attempts to eradicate the mosquito? I think that's a very important question. We, there, there are elements of creation that have been vilified over human history. Snakes are probably an equally good example. Um, at the same time, there have been parts of the human community that have seen snakes as um, emblems of wisdom. Uh, They go places that other creatures often don't. Uh, They shed their skins in in, uh, surprising ways. Um, There's something to be learned, I think, from every part of creation. If we're willing to look carefully at what this creature does, how it lives in its context, uh, at some level, mosquitoes are important. We don't fully understand why and how, but they're important to the health of the whole ecosystem. But they're also spreading disease and Absolutely, death. Absolutely, as are human beings. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, 
but you don't want to eradicate them either. We, we pray not. <laughs> we pray not. Um, which came first, asked somebody here. Is your faith strengthened through your scientific work or vice versa? Yes. It's <laughs> a very Anglican yes. answer. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, I, I grew up in the... In, in the wonder of the beauty of the northwestern part of the United States, oceans and rivers and mountains and trees mm. and fish. Uh, and I, I know the wonder of God in the natural world. And the more I examine the natural world, the more awestruck I become. Mm. Um, mm. But I think of... Um, talk about Darwin. I mean, people like Thomas Huxley, who was a great advocate of Darwin's views late 19th century, would say things like um, science commits suicide when it adopts a creed. Mm. So uh, that sort of sense that science is somehow neutral. Mm. Is it? No, it can't be. It's, no. it's a human endeavor. Okay. Um, that's what I was trying to point to in terms of the the revolution or the repentance that, that science goes through when it, it discovers what it thought isn't as true as it needs to be, mm-hmm. um, that it requires the interplay of human beings in the, in the endeavor, uh, that one person cannot hold the fullness of scientific truth nor the fullness of religious truth. Mm. Um, Mm. We need to continue to test one another in some sense. There used to be a, a comedy program on the radio here called The Goon Show. And there was a character in it who always knew what time it was because somebody had once written it down for him on a piece of paper. <laughs> uh, we don't want oh. those in science or religion, it no. seems to me. Um, more are coming through here. Is there an argument that progress in medicine and genetics is a product of a creator god and as such should be embraced? I, yes, I believe so. Uh, god created us with brains uh, or created, cr- created us in a way that led to the development of brains and I believe they're a gift that are meant to be used for the good of the whole creation. Uh, if there are ways that human suffering can be relieved through what we've discovered in medicine, uh, they should be, those methods should be appropriately employed. I, th- I think that's part of what Jesus' healing ministry is about. Uh, he's, his healings... Uh, challenge people to re-examine their understanding of why these people are sick. Um, The lepers who are shut out from society, they probably didn't have Hansen's disease, they probably had something else, but uh, the the sin of excluding somebody from community is as damaging as the the fungus or the, the other difficulty that's causing a skin disease. But that, that leads on to another question that's just come in. Is if, if this is a suffering world, if, if Jesus had to go about healing, then who is this creator who's created suffering? Why, uh, if we're interconnected in a beautiful web, 
why is this, why is this, this pain and hurt and a huge cost of creation? I don't think we would know love without it. Mm-hmm. Love seeks the best for others. Love cannot force. Love doesn't force um, others to follow particular paths or live in particular ways. Uh, It's not love if it does. Mm. And that freedom to choose another direction is part of what's necessary in a system that seeks love. So the question here is why does God create suffering? I don't I think God creates God is present in a world that is free enough to produce suffering and God is with us in the midst of that. Mm-hmm. So is God sorry I'm can, can following mm-hmm. this through. I mean, the other thing we say, all you think I'll do is stand up saying a Eucharistic prayer, but I'm thinking so often we talk about Almighty God. Mm. But if God is this lover, mm-hmm. is that, c- can God be Almighty if you're loving? Because it seems to me love doesn't control, isn't Almighty. Mm-hmm. It, it, so a, a lot of our models. Mm-hmm unhelpful mm-hmm. in, in talking about mm-hmm. these things? God is almighty enough not to be almighty. Mm-hmm. I, I, okay. I mean it. Uh, yeah. uh, is to, to withdraw from that um, exercise of control. Mm. Kenosis. Yeah. Let him, yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, I'm going to shut up. Um, How does the story of Adam and Eve fit into the theory of evolution? Can it? Where did our um, ability to choose good and evil come from? It is a product of evolution. To be aware of our ability to choose is really what that story is about, I believe. Um, And do you, I mean... Eve came second. Has this been a problem? Some people say it's a sign of greater perfection. (laughs) (laughs) I'm with you on that one. (laughs) Um, But let's just think about the story. Um, Behind this question is how we, and you mentioned it, how we read the Bible. Mm -hmm. It seems to me that when people come through those doors at the back, we're used to hearing truth come in different ways. So we're quite used in this, in this day and age to hearing, this is the news. And you sit up and you try and listen to, to the truth in that form. Facts, what's happened. Right. Oh. But equally, you can sort of say, once upon a time. Mm-hmm. And you equally tune in to hear truth, but coming in a different form, Mm -hmm. story, Mm -hmm. right? I often wonder when people come in places like this, whether they're ready to hear the news, but the language they're getting is more once upon a time. They're walking into a poem, Mm -hmm. but they think they're in a newsroom. And and people hear the 
news on television or their phone yeah. uh, in ways they've we don't always recognize that it, it's always interpreted right it's always through a particular lens okay and it doesn't invite us into that larger sense of yeah. exploration. Mm -hmm. So when you read this story, when we tell the story of Adam and Eve and of creation, what are we doing when we're telling it? How are we asking people to interpret and hear it? I think we're inviting people to enter into the story mm -hmm. rather than simply um, watch a play mm -hmm. to become part of it, to find ourselves in that story. So it's a formative story rather than an informative one. It, yeah. It's asking us to form ourselves around the telling mm -hmm. rather than mm -hmm. tell us how the mechanistics... Right. As tell you... us how the heavens go. Okay. Oh. Um, questions are coming in. What is your definition of a miracle? Oh. It's not something simply that science can't explain, so therefore God had... God did it. Um, a miracle, I think, is a, an evocation of wonder in us, um, an invitation into understanding or understanding ourselves as something larger than what we have known up till now. Mm -hmm. It's, it's an invitation into that ongoing, unfolding story. So what, what about the miracles of Jesus, which are um, events which sort of subvert the natural order? I think many of them are, are invitations into greater relationship, mm -hmm. deeper relationship with God who is beyond our ken, our knowing. Mm -hmm. And about abundance. Mm -hmm. I was struck by your use of abundant life and how we express that in our language and in our stories. John's gospel talks about signs mm -hmm. rather than miracles. And that, that, that may be a more helpful piece of language. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'm trying to get through as many as I can, so I'm sorry if I'm rushing, but I want to do justice to everybody who's patiently uh, sitting there. How can we save the planet when so many... It carries on, don't worry. How can we save the planet when so many don't believe it needs saving and when so many aren't persuaded by the evidence of climate change? Go tell them. Go show them. <laughs> um, until we enter into that story, we're not open to transformation. Uh, and it's a painful story. Um, it's a story of immense suffering beyond what um, I think any of us can imagine. Uh, it's, it's the carnage of World War I uh, writ um, orders of magnitude larger. And I, I, I think for some that the denial of it is simply an, un, an inability to wrap our minds around what it is we're doing to this planet. Um, and uh, 
a fear that, of course, I can't possibly do anything that will make a difference. Mm. Mm-hmm. But together, we can make a difference. But it's going to take that kind of prophetic standing up like um, Bonhoeffer did and Martin Luther King did. And it, it's going to require the willingness to challenge the forces of darkness that want to hide what's happening or manipulate what's happening for other ends. Mm-hmm. Tell me about why you think people are denying it. You've hinted at it, but is it a sense that we like to feel we are in control and can't quite cope with the fact that we are vulnerable and susceptible to forces beyond us? I think it's a piece of it and a sense that what an individual can do is um, not worth anything in the face of such a challenge. Mm. Um, And I think we tell a Christian story that pushes hard against that kind of despair. But do you feel that traditionally the Christian story has contributed to that sense of control and dominance over? Certainly in our past and certainly today there are those who would say that the coal that's in the earth is ours to use as we please, uh, that we should be digging it up as fast as we can and it doesn't matter if it pollutes the air. Uh, of course it doesn't pollute the air. You know, that's just you know, a cloud. Um, <laughs> mm. Mm. Yeah. Uh, so uh, uh, what you're saying is that Christians have a duty to undo ways in which they have contributed to the problem. Yes, and we have a duty to stop hiding from what we're doing, mm. to stop denying what we're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll read the question and then mm-hmm. underneath it I think there's lying quite a lot. Are we creating God's world in test tubes or destroying it? I think it's hard to know exactly where that question is pointing. Um, What we're creating in test tubes, uh, and again, it's the scientific work that's going on sometimes, uh, I think, transcends what we ought to be doing. Uh, There's a lively debate right now about the appropriateness of some kinds of genetic manipulation, Mm -hmm. particularly whether we should be manipulating the DNA in germ cells, in eggs and sperm, Mm -hmm. to change uh, the children that could be born as a result. Uh, the debate is about whether it's appropriate to try to fix genetic diseases that way, whether it's appropriate to try to uh, create uh, more perfect human beings that way, uh, whether it's appropriate to try to choose uh, girl children over boy children or tall children over short children over, or blue-eyed children over brown-eyed children. Uh, I think those are very important questions that can only be debated in the kind of conversation that draws scientists and people of faith, who are sometimes the same people uh, and sometimes not, together into a forum that considers the well-being of all. Mm -hmm. 
And the, the expression that's often used is scientists are playing God. Oh. You know, they're, they're, they're trying to be God in their work. Well, people might have said the same thing about Fleming and the discovery of penicillin. Mm-hmm. Uh, feeding people the product of a mold to heal a disease. Um, we, may, we may, before too long, be able to fix genes within a person that contribute to diabetes. Is that an appropriate thing to do or not? Mm-hmm. Um, mm. I think we can only answer that question in community. Um, mm. But the community differs at the moment. It does. The boundaries. It, it, of course it does. And who sets the boundaries? How are that? The community has to wrestle with it. Um, mm-hmm. We have never all agreed about anything. <laughs> yes, um, that's true. Um, talking about not agreeing with one another, there's a question here about the Anglican faith. Is it time for the Anglican faith to abandon all teachings of creationism? and intelligent design. There's two things there. Creationism first. I understand creationism and intelligent design in the, in the sense that they deny the reality of the full scientific story. And I think we need to abandon that. I think we need to use all of what God has given us, um, not only our traditional ways of theologizing. I believe we need to use the gifts, the vocations, the ministries of people in all walks of life, including scientists, to understand the world that God is within and beyond. And what about situations that happened in the States and, and over here, actually, um, about schools that teach creationism? It's a religious perspective that I believe is at variance with the best of the Judeo-Christian tradition. Mm-hmm. And we're, I don't live in a theocracy yet, I hope. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I don't think the UK is a theocracy. And therefore, I do not think that we should be teaching a religious, a particular narrow religious viewpoint to all students in public schools or in state-supported schools. And how big, I mean, many people here might know more than I do about this, but how, how big an issue is it in the United States, that, that debate? Well, um, when you look at the fact that the state of Texas Um, is the largest textbook market and therefore governs much of what is taught in other parts of the United States. And there continue to be challenges to teaching evolution as science. Uh, It's an issue. It's an issue. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, We're hitting around 7.40, so now is your last chance, please, to get in your uh, questions because time is coming Uh, to an end. So please do ask your questions now if you'd like me to ask one. Um, How does modern understanding of astronomy reconcile with God's presence and place? Where is God physically 
in relation to us. So we talk well, about ascension, don't we, and we look yeah, up. Yeah. But where's God? That's, that's, I believe that's really what, you know, understanding creation as outward invisible sign of inward and spiritual reality um, might offer us that we are within God uh, and yet God is beyond that. Um, so where is God? That's the sort of question I get asked by seven and eight year olds in our school's department. Where is God not? Mm-hmm. Okay. I'd, I'd go at it from the other direction. Mm-hmm. Um, if science and religion can coexist, what is your thought on euthanasia? Mm. We'd have to define euthanasia, I think, very specifically. Mm-hmm. I would not call uh, hospice care euthanasia even though giving dying people adequate pain medication to control their pain might hasten their death. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think relieving suffering is a higher good than extending life Mm. in in a particularly painful situation. But the specific decision is usually left to the patient, to the dying one. Do you feel people ought to have the right to, say, travel to Switzerland and end their life when they, they are in intense pain and suffering mm-hmm. and know that the end is coming? I worked as a hospice chaplain in Oregon uh, at a time when the state opened the door for people to do that. Uh, I became aware that patients who, were, who knew they were dying were, were all terminal, news, news, um, were all terminal, but people who are conscious of the fact that they are likely to die within a relatively short period of time um, are often exceedingly anxious about dying in pain, um, having a loss of dignity in their living that they're not willing to countenance. And that most, many if not most of the people who began to think about seeking medication that might let them shorten their lives did it for reasons of fear and the ability to control how they died. I think that's a spiritual, pastoral issue that can be relieved before that need is engaged, Mm -hmm. before that decision is engaged to end one's life. Um, And as a chaplain, were you mm -hmm. present with people who made that decision? I did not have a patient who made that decision. They might, they might have uh, gone through the process for acquiring the drugs, but I never had a relationship with a patient who chose to use them. But would that be, as we're talking about creative and uh, uh, 
Is that act of wanting to end your life in that circumstance a destructive or a creative act? I think that's a highly individual... Uh-huh. ...judgment. Mm-hmm. It can be both. Mm-hmm. What, what is Jesus' passion? Mm-hmm. He went knowing, he went to Jerusalem knowing that his stance was likely to result in his death. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yep. I'm coming back to the screen, I'm afraid, because I do want to uh, tr- do justice to the questions that have come in. Um, There's a question here about, do we understand creation too much as a static event a long time ago rather than as a continuous act? Is this a a god of, you know, he started it off and stood back and had a cup of tea, or actually is this god who's creating all the time and cannot... This god is an Englishman. Yeah, quite. uh, Had a cup of coffee. God who is continuously creative. Yes. Do we lose that in this talk a bit, do you think? I, I think that's a human... Uh, you know, it, 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 it's part of the narrative. Um, that I think understanding creation as continual is essential to our hope, mm-hmm. our Christian hope. Um, mm. Mm-hmm. Say a bit more about that. Creation isn't predictable. It's free and open, uh, even though we may have you know, some expectation for what may result. Um, we can look back and see how things have come to be, but we don't know precisely the route that was taken, uh, and we don't know the future of what creation is going to result in Mm. Um, other than the negative results as of our behavior at the moment Mm. I was struck also by I think it was Einstein who said that the mystery of the universe is actually its comprehensibility Mm -hmm. the fact the miracle is that you can understand Mm -hmm. parts of it Mm -hmm. you you made an allusion Mm -hmm. to that idea Mm -hmm. could you just say a bit more about that the universe and creation, you can use it either, um, is understandable and it, its, its evolution has led to creatures who can begin to wrestle with what it means and how it has come to be how it is. Mm. Okay. And f- physicists will tell you that the, the parameters... That, of the universe are such that if anything had been even slightly different, none of this would be here. It would have exploded a long time ago or fallen back into, uh, into a singularity. I must say, I'm, I'm surprised at tonight's audience in one respect. Um, nobody's mentioned Richard Dawkins. Okay. okay. Um, and, uh, I thought he would be quite high in our, in our questions mm-hmm. uh, this evening. Um, Richard Dawkins wrote that 
the universe we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is at bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. Now, love him or loathe him, he's certainly influential, and, and a lot of people read him and are attracted to his blog and so on. You presumably disagree with this. Mm-hmm. How do you take on that view of a scientist? It, in some sense, that is a theistic statement. <laughs> it, 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 it is his creed, if you will. It's a fundamentalist statement. Yes. yes. Um, it denies what many people find in looking at the wonder of creation, the very characteristics, the, the parameters of creation that have led to the reality of human beings who can love, act lovingly, who can um, create remarkable art, who can generate meaning in the world around them uh, and within themselves and others that transcends individuals. There is something transcendent about what has come to be, which I think is a, which we, I believe, most of us believe in this room, is a sign, is a sacrament of the one who has caused this mm-hmm. to become. Mm-hmm. So do you think people tend to divide in two between those for whom it is a sense of blind chance, indifference, get through it, and those who sense that somehow reality might be trustworthy? Scientists have to believe that reality is trustworthy. Uh You can't do science unless you can set up experiments that lead to results and that can be repeated. Mm -hmm. Or theories that hold in more than one very local situation. So is your debate with somebody like Dawkins not so much the fact that he can't see the patterns and the that you can, Mm -hmm. and the sense of origin, sacred origin, but that he's actually too fundamentalist. Too fundamentalist. He's not not a good agnostic when it comes to it. Mm. Yeah, okay. Um, Just time is nearly there. I just want to get through one uh, question here that's come in. Somebody here was struck by you talking about the sacramental nature of the universe mm-hmm. and, and God's body. Mm-hmm. Could, you, could you open that up a little bit more? Because that's quite an almost shocking image in some ways. Well, it's, it's ancient, mm-hmm. I think. It's just that we haven't always seen what's in our texts. Mm-hmm. Um, a sacrament in our tradition is an outward and visible sign of an inward and spiritual reality, Right? The creation, our texts say over and over and over again, is a sign of God's love for what is. 
we are contained in some sense, held um, within that love. Mm-hmm. And the, I think the, the very reality that creatures have come to be who can model, give voice to, image that kind of love in their relationships is yet another sacramental expression of what it means to be contained within the body of God's creation. It's, 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 a, it's a mystical concept, if you will, yeah. but I, it's, I think it's congruent with the fullness of our tradition. I was um, taught at King's London by a wonderful Canadian theologian called Grace Janssen, who wrote a book called God's World, God's Body. Um, But what I most remember her for is once when I was complaining about uh, all the contradictions in theology, she said, Mark, take uh, paradox for all your doctrinal headaches. (laughs) And I've always always thought I need to buy more paradox for my doctrinal headaches. Um, I'm afraid time has, has come to uh, an end, but I, I just wondered, you talked very passionately about the fact that there's only hope about the future of this world in the human heart, mm. that the problem of, of the world lies mm-hmm. here some, somewhere, mm-hmm. and that there needs to be some mm. metanoia, some change. Mm-hmm. Can you give us a thought as we head out uh, as to how we can... I mean, let's begin with ourselves. How how can we begin that change? Mm. What do you love in this world? What do you love in what you know of creation? What will you give to help that grow and make more of itself. That is a godly, creative act. And I think that's what we're called to. Thank you. Um, I have to admit, uh, the last thing I am as a scientist, uh, when I was at school, I used to say, if it squirms, I know it's biology. <laughs> if it stinks, it's chemistry. If it doesn't work, it's normally physics, and I don't understand oh, it, it's oh, mathematics. Oh, oh. So you really have uh, got a convert here. Oh. You've, you've um, drawn me back to taking science seriously as a person of faith. Um, it, one of the great theological uh, truths, of course, is that uh, we begin to reflect what we love most. Uh, but this isn't true because we know what you think about squid. Mm. And squid have no backbone. And uh, I'd just like to say that what I admire you for so much is your backbone, your, your unapologetic and uh, relentless commitment to... Uh, what you have grown to love through your study. Uh, And that's always a very inspiring, inspiriting thing to encounter. Um, I've been reading a little bit uh, of uh, Bishop Catherine's works, 
And I'd just like to end with something I read, which I think, having heard you tonight, really does sum up uh, the person that I've met this evening. She wrote this in an essay. We need bold and prophetic voices. We need networks of inspired and organized people. And we need that vision of a healed world of peace and justice for all. There is abundant work to be done, yet it must always be inspired by that vision of of shalom and salam, Mm. food and drink for feasting, dignified work and Sabbath leisure, no one lording it over another, all God's children living in peace. And God sends us as Christians to pray that it may be so, and to work like hell to make it so. I want to thank you on behalf of everyone here for all that you've given tonight and for all that you've begun to work in our own minds. I, when I, when I hit, heard you, I felt as if something's coming to birth in me to, to renew myself, and that's always a wonderful thing. And please uh, accept our gratitude for this evening. And please, will you also take the best wishes and affection of us here at St. Paul's this evening back to the Episcopal Church when you travel home. Thank you so much for being here tonight. Thank you.